When you hear poverty, what do you think of? Someone walking miles a day for water barefoot while wearing rags? Someone on the streets homeless with a beard longer than you are tall with bus open shoes and their ribs showing? Or perhaps someone struggling to make ends meet as they work two and a half jobs while still trying to be home enough to be a parent to their kids and spouse to their partner? What if I told you that it wasn't just all three of these things, but so much more? What if I told you that you're more similar to them than you are to the people telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? And wow, I picked another doozy this week. The amount of research that went into this was immense, and the amount of anger I had while reading about 90% of the information was a red hot that I very rarely actually felt. So, get ready to hear some of the most venom you'll ever hear in my voice on this episode of Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to Why Aren't You Talking About This? Welcome to the fourth episode, and the first episode I'm scripting and recording after posting the first one. Thank you to everyone for the early support, especially because for some of you it's kind of a shock hearing me like this for the first time. I've gotten some foreign listeners, which is cool, but also kind of weird, especially because this is a show about American problems and fuck-ups, so I don't know how that happened, but thank you anyways. Now, while in other episodes I'll tell you about how this works and everything and complain about lack of emails, you guys know all of that by now. I still haven't gotten any emails or reviews in, but hey, probably in the next couple episodes if the numbers stay positive. Uh, Before we continue, I do just want to reiterate that I'm going to be downright venomous in this episode. Like, to a level that's probably going to be a little scary for some people, so forewarned if the sounds of an angry white man is... A trauma trigger for you. Also, the episode title suggests I'm going to be talking a lot about poverty in this episode, so if that's problematic for you as well, it might be a good idea to either skip this one or pop on over to Way Tad Nerd. Take care of yourself, and let's get into it. Alright, so this episode we're going to be talking about poverty and why it's probably one of the greatest examples of why we fucking suck. And I don't mean as Americans. Largely, I mean as a species. Now, before we get into the beef and cheddar of it, I actually have a person to thank for making this episode not a total mess. My mom. She's been researching poverty for a long time and has been working with people in poverty for over a decade. So she let me copy her homework for a good amount of this research, and I am incredibly grateful. With that covered, let's start with some definitions. So what is poverty? Put into simple dictionary definitions. Poverty is having little to no material possessions, assets, or income. But a more accurate definition, poverty is lacking income to the extent that necessities like food, water, shelter, clothing, and medical care are beyond your reach entirely. Now, this can include things like living in a rundown shack, a van by the river like that John Candy bit on SNL, or being entirely without shelter. It can describe not getting that weird growth on your butthole check because you can't afford it, 
all the way to being entirely unable to even find someone that knows fuck all about medicine in a hundred mile radius. Basically, poverty is whenever your circumstances prevent you from receiving the full suite of human rights because you and or your community can't afford it or get access to it. There are also eight kinds of poverty, which basically describes the reasons why it exists under certain circumstances. So the first is generational poverty. This is when poverty carries over generational lines and is generally measured when the grandparents to the current generation have all been impoverished. Now, this might be the kind of poverty that comes to mind when you think of it as a concept. People have been in the cycle because their parents were and their parents were. Now, if you're an asshole, you also assume that this is the only kind of poverty that exists. Because you assume that people in America can't be impoverished because they're born into it, you assume it has something to do with the good old American worth ethic, you piece of shit. Now, the second is situational poverty. This form of poverty is caused when the person or family in question falls on hard times and is unable to pay for basic necessities. Now, unlike what your Aunt Sharon, who locks her doors whenever she sees someone not Anglo in her neighborhood, or your great uncle Skippy, who lives in the woods with his other 76 totally not gay buddies in the middle of rural Ohio, may think, this isn't because someone is bad and terrible and deserves it. Usually it's caused by a layoff, unexpected medical bills, natural disasters, or something like a national economic crisis. Unlike generational poverty, that really tends to curb stomp the very concept of having hope for a brighter future out of you, most people within situational poverty will remain much more hopeful since, in most cases, there's a defined end goal to aim for. Working class poverty is the third kind of poverty. Now, this form of poverty is the one that's going to make about half of you listening think I'm a no-good cocksucking commie, and the other half make me think I'm a very good cocksucking comrade. Working class poverty is poverty that occurs when someone who works, by the U.S. definition, at least 27 weeks in the labor force per year and still falls below the poverty line. Someone living within this kind of poverty will be living paycheck to paycheck, are often renters rather than landowners, and things like an education and medical care are a pipe dream at best. Kids who are raised by working poor parents will often see their parents work and get literally nothing out of it, but a few fucking ass hairs off the big daddy business, while business continues to swell year after year. And why does this form of poverty exist? Because companies in the U.S., continue to hire workers at dog shit wages that can't fucking buy anything while hiring more and more workers to cover increasingly smaller shifts to avoid full-time wages while reaping millions of dollars of value from their backs like a fucking parasite and fighting every step of the way to make their workers more and more miserable all while the cost of living continues to rise despite literally everyone with half a brain cell and more nuts than fuck saying this is going to backfire. And you know what? It will backfire. I look forward to the day I can hang a CEO from the top of the crumbling walls of Walmart Supercenter from his dick. Okay, deep breaths. Deep breaths. So the fourth kind of poverty is immigration poverty. This kind of poverty is caused when a person or family moves into community from somewhere else. Now, this on its own isn't a guarantee to cause you to be impoverished, but it's more likely. And why is that? Well, because there's a language and or cultural barrier that might make getting a job difficult, if not impossible, on top of having to spend a fuck ton to move in the first place, and then being completely cut off from the social safety net of familiar faces and a familiar community. And obviously, to the assholes out there, I can read your mind asking, well, why don't they just stay in their own country? Well, let me answer your question with another question. Why is it your fucking business, Brenda? Sounds like you need to shut your fucking mouth and worry about yourself. Also, to actually answer that, People move sometimes. 
You know that, right? Sometimes people go to a different house and then live there. And, you know, hey, it's kind of financially hard to do that. And look, I know you have a kind of war perspective on it because you were a child when your parents divorced and made you a better piece of shit. But it was really expensive for your dad to move out. All right, so the fifth kind of poverty is absolute poverty. Uh, this form is what happens when you become entirely unable to pay for basic goods and services at all. Now, this doesn't mean choosing between getting to eat today and paying rent this month. This means choosing between getting to pretend you ate today or pretending like you have a rent to even worry about. Absolute poverty isn't super common in the U.S., but if it was taken into account for tracking global levels of poverty, the poverty rate would double. Sixth is relative poverty. Relative poverty, rather than being unable to buy anything at all, is dependent on the country you live in. Now, this is measured by falling into the bottom half of your country's medium income. Now, in comparison to something like absolute poverty, this might not seem all that bad. It's still pretty shitty, especially if you live somewhere where the median income is barely enough to cover expenses. And also for some context for some of you, the median income in the United States is $31,133 a year per household. So if your total household income falls below that, you're living in relative poverty. Seventh is urban poverty. And no, this isn't like the Hollywood talent acquisition way of saying black. It's the poverty that occurs within a city. Now, why is this important to distinguish? Well, because cities have some unique shittiness that makes its poverty different from other kinds of poverty. So first, cities are much more cellular than other places, meaning finding and joining supportive social groups is harder and makes it harder to get support from friends. Cities also have polarized incomes and high cost of living, meaning that the two kinds of people who live in cities are either low-income people who can't afford to move away, but also can't afford literally anything, and extremely high-income people that are 99.999999% more likely to say, I love this city, it's so comfortable, from their penthouse, 1,500 feet away from the people they consider peasants. Cities also tend to be more dangerous and unhealthy, especially considering that the vast majority of cities are more artificial than everyone in a high school reunion, which can make health problems and saving money a lot harder. And finally, because of the shit show that has anything having to do with the American government and the high population of cities, actual help is hard to find from the overtaxed social service system. And finally is rural poverty. Uh, this form of poverty describes how dirt-fucking-poor people can get out in the middle of nowhere. Like urban poverty, there's a lot of factors to this form of poverty that make it unique. First is a lack of access to, I mean, basically anything. Social service centers and offices will place themselves near high populations of people to ensure that they can actually make it. So, that collection of five farms and two and a half trailers isn't going to get one. But, how the fuck are they supposed to make it to the unemployment office? Their house's wheels were removed decades ago. Also in rural areas, in addition to having fewer job opportunities, most jobs are low-paying and back-breaking menial labor jobs, meaning that most people in the situation are also working poor. And adding into all of this is that education is usually less useful than a tandem dildo as a straight people, and almost total lack of support for disabilities, and you have a recipe for some very potent poverty soup. Now, with all that covered, what is considered poverty? So in the U.S. is to make less than $26,500 a year for a family of four, which works out as $6,625 per person if everyone works, or $13,250 if there are only two people that work. And per hour, the range is $2.30 an hour 
to 460 an hour, which, yes, that is below the minimum wage in the U.S., unless you take into account that part-time work exists, meaning that someone could be making, like, 10 bucks an hour on paper and still be getting paid the equivalent of 460 an hour. But according to the World Bank and UNICEF, the line for extreme poverty worldwide is $1.90 USD per day. But don't get it twisted. You don't just measure poverty by monetary value. You can and should measure by a number of factors built using the multidimensional poverty index. First, poverty is divided into three areas of need, those being health, education, and living standards. Health includes nutrition and child mortality. Fucking yikes. Education includes both years of schooling and school attendance, and living standards includes fuel, sanitation, water, electricity, housing, and assets. And these indicators are used to measure poverty in a more accurate way than simply saying, this person's worth X amount of dollars, and instead putting poverty into the wider context that just giving someone a few dollars doesn't fix the problem. Yeah, you gave a homeless man money, good for you, but you didn't just fix poverty. But why should this matter? Well, on an individual level, poverty causes an insane level of stress. But this isn't just emotional stress caused by being worried about where to get money or how you're going to get out or survive the day. It's also the physical stress of not getting to eat or eat right, not having clothes to fit or protect you from the elements, and having a shitty place to live. And the mental stress on a deeper level beyond just the money is also crazy high. Because your brain is in a survival mindset all the time and is constantly active. All of this stress causes you increasingly negative health effects as well. And this is discounting that children are also thrown into the system too, in case you fucking forgot. Not only does the stress and lack of nutrition affect their development, but babies born into poverty are more likely to have a low birth weight and suffer compounding physical, mental, and emotional issues because of it. Children are then more likely to get sick, suffer from high stress, and also miss school, and stop jerking off. I know that some of you fucks get off on people suffering, but stop the jerking it to the Brett Cooper come tribute, you fucking freak. Speaking of what if Ben Shapiro had a pussy, if you've been sucking him off lately, you might still be asking why you should care. Well, because the economy will also be affected. On a societal level, having higher rates of poverty contributes to having lower rates of happiness and begins to strain medical systems as people only start showing up to the hospital, their long-term issue very suddenly becomes a hospital or hearse situation. Also, because fewer people are attending school, education numbers drop. And because of the rising unhappiness, it can contribute to urban decay and crime. As other people, notice how much you're fucking over the poor and stop giving a single shit about anything. And poor people become more and more unable to pay off fines or afford lawyer fees for whatever legal trouble they might get involved in. All of the above then contributes to both unemployment and a lack of economic action. And then, boom, you're in a recession. And then, like, Ouroboros eating its own tail... Society bends over backwards like Uzumaki and sticks his entire mouth into its own ass and starts chewing. Because poverty is cyclical. If a massive economic crisis happens, a bunch of people fall into poverty. So that makes the initial problem much worse. Which then happens again, and etc, etc, until the society collapses. Poverty is an endless downward spiral straight into the small intestines of Satan, and doing nothing doesn't help. By the way, doing nothing includes just moving poor people out of your neighborhood. If you think that works... 
Just know I'm looking forward to when you get kicked out of your house when your wife finds out you've been fucking the babysitter. So then what actually causes poverty? When you really look at it, basically nothing within an individual's control. And most people that are dealing with this shit are experiencing generational poverty or systemic poverty rather than making quote-unquote bad choices. Other things that can cause it are being laid off, medical debt, you or someone helping you pay the bills going to prison, being in the middle of a war or some kind of economic downturn, or compounding layers of horseshit that eventually breaks the camel's back and shoves you into poverty. Also, I wanted to wait until now to describe systemic poverty to get you invested with that, but that economy kind of cock tease earlier. Systemic poverty is essentially that your specific demographics are being intentionally forced into poverty because the powers that be want you to stay poor or don't give a fuck about you enough to actually provide you with adequate services. Now, I'm going to say, if you're white in America, this isn't you. Yes, you can very much be impoverished, and your neighbors can be suffering systemic poverty, but if the people in charge were more for saying the quiet part out loud, you'd probably have been airlifted out of there like a lost hiker. What I mean are groups like ethnic, sexual, and gender minorities that might shake things up, so the fucks at the top of the ladder huck their wet turds at them specifically. But now, how do people get out of poverty? With help. I mean, sure, there's ways to get out by yourself, but to show you why that's extremely rare, let me give you a metaphor. Say that you fall into a mile deep hole in the ground. Now, some people crowd around the edge and say, hey, have you tried jumping up? Which would be like you saying shit like, have you thought about not being poor? And pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And now, some people can climb up, or they can carve out little handholds and climb up that way, but can 99.9% .9 of people? No. Most people need some of the gaped mouth motherfuckers at the top to drop a ladder or a rope or something. And honestly, if you're just gonna stand at the edge and yell down, get the fuck out of the way so someone that isn't a waste of space can actually do something useful. But that aside, why is it so hard to get out of poverty? Because there are specific barriers that stop people from getting out of it. Now, are these nine things gonna be true for everyone? No. But are most people going to have at least a few? Yes. The first of these barriers is crisis living, which is the politically correct way of saying shit's fucked. This is what happens when your entire world is a massive ball of garbage on fire rolling downhill rapidly, like when you're in the middle of a depression, war, or even something like high rates of violent crime. And when you're under those conditions, reasonably, your first thought isn't on getting a better job with higher pay and also applying for aid from social services because people are trying to kill you. The second is tyranny of the moment. Basically, if you're living in a situation where your entire life is one long period of being incredibly stressed about literally everything because your brain understands that being poor fucking sucks, it's hard to hold out any hope for the future. For most people, the base instinct is to go to ground and weigh out the gorilla pounding that life's trying to give them. It also refers to the process in which either internally or externally, maliciously or ignorantly, you're being kept poor by some force. It could be a deeply internalized, malicious mental health spiral telling you that you deserve to suffer, or more likely, it's a highly external politician accepting $5.5 million to anonymously shit in your mouth. And all of this comes down to, what's the point of trying? The third barrier is a lack of resources. That you could get out of poverty, but there's no jobs, and the social workers are all gone because the DHS office keeps getting attacked by angry, red-hatted scumbags that think that helping the poor for any other reason than Jesus is communist. Or what you're more likely to think of, a war-torn area having literally no access to anything because people they've never met fortunate sunned all over their city. Fourth is the distrust of institutions. Like the second barrier, this could be external or internal. 
Either way, there's some sort of evidence or belief that you can't trust the normal safety net you'd rely on. So, for example, if you live in an inner city area where it's well known that the social workers are getting reach-arounds from local fuckwit business owners to keep people in shitty jobs with low pay and worse hours, then reasonably you'd be unwilling to get their help to find a good job. Or, alternatively, sometimes it's the fear that when you go into the DHS office, they'll hold you down and jab you with the newest autism-causing, microchip-filled 1984 Big Brothers-watching COVID vaccine, so you're avoiding them. Now, fifth is a sense of fatalism, a belief that is your fate and that there isn't any other options but to accept your place in reality. Alternatively, this could be something like thinking that you're too far gone to be saved and that the only thing that can stop you from being impoverished forever is an otherwise unknown great-grandma dying and giving you millions of dollars or some weirdly rich hot man inviting you into a sex dungeon. Sixth is having difficulty or inability to plan. Now, I know that some of you that are hate-listening might think that this is the trump card to use to own the libs and totally not just make them roll their eyes at how fucking dumb you are, but isn't. This doesn't mean dumb. This means the school system, even for the honor roll kids, have fucking failed us all in money management. Now, imagine if you miss a fuck ton of school. Well, now you're ultra fucked with money management. Or, hey, you're really busy trying not to die right now, so balancing a checkbook isn't really on your mind. And if you're going to use this as a reason to say that poor people deserve being poor, how about you balance a checkbook, motherfucker? No help. Just fucking balance your own fucking checkbook for a year and then think about if you were scrounging for the barest sliver of a crumb of anything to survive while doing it. Alright, seventh is coexisting problems. Again, this is the PC way to say getting gorilla pounded by life. In this case, your barrier to get out of poverty is an avalanche of issues that may or may not be something you could deal with if they came up at different times, but now that they're all happening at once, you're fucked. Like, if you have a string of big medical bills, and then COVID hit, so you lost your job, but you're also disabled, so getting a new job is even harder. So now you're in debt during a pandemic and a recession, and no one is hiring you because you have additional needs. Even though businesses aren't supposed to, they're absolutely discriminating. And then, uh-oh, your partner got their car totaled, so you can't leave the house, and also you live in a floodplain and it's fucking raining. Clearly, there's not a reasonable solution here without someone helping you. Eighth is not understanding or knowing the hidden rules of economic class. What this means is that in addition to our American culture, often ethnic culture, regional culture, and sub-regional culture, people also have a class culture. And while there are differences between them, these three general groups of poor, middle, and wealthy have generally consistent priorities. If you're trying to escape poverty, these rules can absolutely fuck you. So if you're in poverty, generally the priority is survival, interpersonal relationships, and entertainment, so you're not as miserable as everyone being judgy of your dietary choices is. And often for people in poverty, their concern is quantity. So like, have you eaten enough today? Do you have enough money? Or do you want more? While for the middle class, the priorities are work and achievement, and the primary concern is quality, like, is the food good, or what do you think of my yard? And here's when you run into a problem, because a lot of people are ingrained with their priorities and concerns from a young age, and if you're trying to get out of poverty with either priority, it suddenly becomes a lot harder, because if you're used to the middle class, you still try to fulfill those values, meaning you're spending more. If you're used to poverty, you're more concerned with surviving right now, rather than the middle-class grind set, which prevents you from pushing through that ceiling. And finally, the last barrier is the surrender of self-image. This barrier is 
kind of close to human psychology in general, in that when experiencing something deeply stressful, traumatic, or painful, your brain removes self-identity from the equation for a little bit in order to not entirely overwhelm you. And what does this mean when you're impoverished? You give up your personal identity and goals in order to survive, even if it's just for another day. And when you've been doing that for months or years, it's a lot easier to just let yourself go and stop caring because facing the idea that you might never accomplish those goals becomes insurmountable. And so let's say that you're aware of your barriers and are ready to start making that climb. How do you start? By getting help. Now, this can be from friends and family, community programs and nonprofits, and the government. While you could go with just one, I personally suggest going with all of them, because friends and family might not be able to always help you, community programs might pass you up, and the government can be slower than jerking off to a slightly effeminate rock. And what you're looking for with this help is anything to lessen the burden of surviving, so they can either find work or better work, or pursue some form of education or self-improvement to make surviving easier. All these options can also do one of those functions for you as well. But like I said earlier, most people don't get out on their own. And now that we've covered all of that, what do governments do about it? Well, if they're nice or understand the strategic detriment of having high poverty rates, they'll invest in programs like what we've mentioned above. In the U.S., stuff like SNAP, or food stamps, and TANF, or welfare, help to provide food credits and income respectively, while things like employment departments can help to network jobs. Alternatively, particularly stupid countries will choose to ignore the problem for the very brief public order bonus they get from having a population too poor to stop them from being evil. But, as we've already discussed, not helping the poor is a great way to get that good suck into not being a country anymore. And of course, being the best of banal shittiness, America somehow manages to do both at the same time. Okay, but now with that last jab of the country I live in that lets me make that comment, let's get into the history. Now, to really do poverty justice, we're going to start at the dawn of civilization. And before you get too antsy, we're not going to spend a lot of time dicking around history before America this time. Because something I found as a through line is that no one really gives a flying fuck about the poor for most of human history, and the few historians that do care have a hell of a time finding literally anything about them. So, before civilization, and for the first couple thousand years of it, everyone but a select few were impoverished. I mean, think about it, if you apply the modern definition, just about everyone before we started growing wheat and making cows fuck each other was likely to be malnourished, dehydrated, and completely unsheltered. And who do you think it was that stopped being that when civilization came around? The sexiest, strongest, best killers in the tribe, who then became early kings, and their closest buddies became the first nobles. And this shifted poverty away from everyone being poor to just the people the dude in charge didn't necessarily care for. Of course, if you go to the extreme, you very well might be able to trace some of these early rich assholes to modern rich assholes. But, you know, that's kind of unlikely given how fucked all of human history has been. Anyways, we're now going to briefly say hi to the ancient Greeks. Say hello. They have several ways to describe someone experiencing poverty. The first is aparos, being someone who doesn't have the income to survive and so are poor, but are otherwise fully capable of one day not being impoverished. Second is the adunatos, being someone poor because they're required to perform some kind of service or servitude to someone else, preventing them from living a better life. This would be someone who is working poor by today's definition, and is probably in some sort of menial occupation with low pay like a farmhand or general laborer. And finally was the tokos, or beggar, who are unable to work at all or are otherwise unable to gain anything of value. 
This would include people with disabilities, mental illness, and who have no kind of connection as defined work or wealth. And how did the ancient Greeks think of these people? Well, for the Patokos in particular, they were considered parasites to society, and for all poor people, the ancient Greeks viewed them as immoral, impious, and getting justly punished for their actions against Greek culture and the gods. Partially because of this, and the bullshit excuse of poor people are too busy to vote, which... That was intentional. Poor people had no voice in politics at all. And all of that is why we don't usually hear about the lives of poor people in ancient Greece. And how they treated poor people is largely the norm in the Western world, especially given that the idea of prosperity being awarded by the gods was commonplace. Meaning that if someone's poor, they pissed off the gods. Also very common, and the norm across the Western world was the structure of societies, being largely, if not almost entirely, made up of the poor with a very small cap of the middle class and then the even smaller group of wealthy people ruling over them. And this continued into the Middle Ages, when the stratification of wealth and labor settled into what we recognize as the highly popular feudal system. During the Middle Ages, the vast majority of people were sustenance farmers and serfs, who lived on the land owned by their landlord and gave them a cut of their goods in exchange. Just above them and into the middle classes were specialized positions and craftspeople who were necessary for day-to-day life and who had the skills to be needed. But the people who were in abject poverty were those who, for one reason or another, were entirely unable to work or couldn't do the menial labor fast enough to provide their cut. If no one was willing to take them in and take care of them, these people would become the impoverished and either wander around the countryside or in a city where you can't pay someone to give a fuck about you. But what changed in the Middle Ages was the practice of alms, where you gave back to the poor in money or food in order to clean your hands of sin. So if you're a rich bitch and you do a whoopsie and do an accidental crusade against other good Christian boys, God would forgive you if you took some of your money and gave it to the poor people or let them take whatever food they wanted from your table after the victory feast, which sometimes might include the table itself. Um, It was kind of a common thing in medieval Europe to have like pieces of bread act as plates, and those would sometimes be given as alms to the poor because that has all the good scraps on it. Anyways, fun fact aside... Uh, Also different was that opposed to earlier and later systems, most people didn't really seem to give a fuck about poverty. It was seen as more of a thing that happens and a natural part of life than some big scary enemy to defeat like how we see it now. But also wasn't quite a personal failing as much as it was a thing that just exists. And Papa government wasn't going to help you, but also really wasn't going to do anything to make it worse. That is, till 1349, in the aftermath of the Black Death, when being unemployed or unable to work, wasn't thought of just a thing that happens sometimes anymore. Now, relabeled as vagrancy, it became a punishable offense and people who didn't have work or didn't move to find work were labeled as lazy. This expanded in Britain in the 16th and 17th centuries as vagrancy became not just people who travel place to place looking for work, but who would rather move on to the next town rather than take a shit job or would rather not be the horse cum collector. If you didn't ask the local lord or other employers to give you a job and move on if they told you to fuck off, they'd punish you with things like branding, whipping, military service, or even sending you to a prison colony. Now, it's not all bad for people worldwide. In fact, from 1644 to 1911 in China, the Qing dynasty didn't have a poverty kink. Said their kink was fixing poverty. And so what they did was set up a China-wide system of granaries, tax relief for the poors, and supply stocks to store excess goods that allowed the poor to take from them as needed. It also had the sneaky benefit of lessening the impact of economic crashes, overproduction, and poor seasons of crops. Smart. But I said 1911, so you know what that means. 
the Industrial Revolution. Welcome to the modern era of wage slavery, getting bent over your boss's knee, and doing everything you can to make your new corporate sky daddies happy. The modern world aside, the very beginning rumblings of the Industrial Revolution were actually pretty decent to the poor, because his needs suddenly arose from more and more low-skilled jobs with an actual paycheck attached to it, suddenly the poor can move away from the farm and have consistent work that allowed them to have security. Because it was unlikely that anyone was going to stop using buttons anytime soon, the button factory was also a job you didn't have to leave for a long, long time. Of course, seeing that most of these factories and plants were stationed in cities that could afford to not only power these facilities, but also need their products, this created an influx of poor people moving to cities. Now, unfortunately, in the mid-1800s, there wasn't an easy way to check if there were actually jobs where you were going besides rumors or letters from home from people advertising that the factory was hiring, which meant soon after the initial waves of hiring, cities swelled with people who needed jobs and very few of them to go around. Added on to that, as jobs back then had less safety features than a McDonald's parking lot and were more dangerous than being vaguely ethnic anywhere within 100 yards of any member of the LAPD, it was very common for people to become injured and crippled, and employers were under no obligation to provide so much as an apology, being that cities soon bloated with a level of poverty almost as disgusting as any other context I've seen the word bloated used on the internet. And within the first few decades, working conditions continued to worsen as businesses started realizing that they don't have to pretend to give a fuck anymore. This caused workplaces to become increasingly dangerous and unhealthy, and this paired with the shifts longer than the dildo your girlfriend tells you not to worry about, and the near-child slavery, and you get something that looks a lot worse than the apparently backwards and suffering suffused agrarian societies from before. For people who could work or find jobs, they were shunted off into workhouses and work camps, becoming essentially slaves in exchange for having the worst possible food and lodging provided in return. And as mentioned earlier, your job security quickly shifted from a guarantee as they needed people to work to nearly nothing, since if you got ground up in the machine or backpocks, they could have the next impoverished cog slipped in before your blood even hit the floor. Add on to this, people were routinely made obsolete as innovations happened faster than you could be comfortable in your new job, and companies would rather kick you to the curb than take the time out of their production schedule to show you how to operate this new machine that has 18 fucking levers and 960 buttons of the simple overhead switch on the one you've been using since you got hired 18 hours ago. And your wages were dog shit, so it wasn't like you could even live on your money long enough to find a new job. So, as you can see, the Industrial Revolution twisted the idea of poverty from being something common and unpleasant to a literal death sentence for about half the people to live long enough to see it. But now to move on to another revolution that was arguably a mistake. In the 1770s, the distance between poor and rich were quite a bit shorter in America. Part of this was living in the colonies, and the other reason was because of the rate of land ownership. Unlike in Europe, the rates of land ownership was actually much closer to equitable than you'd expect. Uh, during the early parts of the revolution, and the clarity soon after, the importance of land ownership was so pronounced that it was discussed very commonly that only landowners should be allowed to vote, since they owned literally the body of America. Ah, it's refreshing that they used to say the quiet part out loud. In 1800 and into the early 1800s, wage labor became increasingly more common and popular as a form of employment, well, the concept of land ownership became sanctified as part of the burgeoning idea of the American dream. 
Now, this worked together to further the gap between rich and poor as competition increased their own land and wealthy people would essentially hire people at whatever rate they wanted. And this was curbed slightly by two events. First being the founding of the Working Men's Party in New York and Philadelphia, being an organization that was highly focused on protecting workers with low wages and social status, like construction workers and porters and such. And some of these protections include worker suffrage, workers' rights, and uh, protection from being thrown in prison for not being able to pay off debts. Fucking commies. The other was in 1840, where a new school of thought in opposition to American individualism started to take off, being communitarianism. This movement basically said that we should be worried about the financial and social good of our entire community, not just ourselves. Which, I know, that's a wild fucking concept. But you know what really dicked everything up? The Civil War. So, during the Civil War, as the Confederates were getting their cheeks clapped, leading members of the Republican Party, back when they were the good guys, saw all this open land with recently killed owners, and had realized that this looks familiar. And, like with Native Americans, they decided, hey, what if we just took this and confiscated the land? Of course, seeing as there was a war going on, most people didn't want to move to the South and work land that very well might get angry white people trying to kill them. So Congress started giving this land in parcels to freed slaves at a rate of 40 acres of land for the low, low price of a buck twenty-five an acre, which is lowballed from the original 1864 plan to allow freedmen to claim four times that amount of land. Meanwhile, General Sherman was letting loose his killstreak reward, motherfucking everything from the Mississippi to the sea, forehead to foreskin. In 1865, General Sherman, as he was using his ultimate, encountered African-American families fleeing from the war-torn parts of the South. After meeting with their leaders, he enacted Special Order 15, which granted them 400,000 acres of conquered and fertile land with now two layers of ghosts, Native Americans and racists. Now, seeing as these were black people owning land, obviously southern white people had a problem, and while it seemed tense for a while that this land would be taken away, the southerners were turned away both physically and legally. And then Lincoln got assassinated. And in April of that year, the new president, Mr. Andrew I Don't See Race Johnson, gives amnesty to all Confederates and therefore returns their land to them by the end of 1865. Of course, this meant that throughout the rest of the late 1860s, freedmen were put under more and more pressure to not only give up land ownership, but also to work what amounts to slavery too, backslide boogaloo. Luckily, the 14th and 15th Amendments passed, which offered some small amount of protection. Unfortunately, by the early 1870s, as the majority of plantation owners not only had their land back, but had even more land than they did initially, and everyone else being poor as fuck in account of both their land being stolen directly under them and the motherfucking the South took, a new practice came about. Since they couldn't work the land and people needed a place to live, these plantation owners began to rent shacks you could live in and conveniently earn an income to pay that rent by working their land. And funny enough, rent and income were basically the same amount of money. Weird, huh? Now, this practice was called sharecropping, as you might have known already, it was only killed in the 1940s by mechanized farming vehicles. Yes, you heard that right. People were living in dirt floor shacks they could barely afford through both world wars working plantation land. And given that the U.S. was doing that thing we do all the time where we invade a place, kill a bunch of people and collapse the government, then slap some new people in power, and then fucking vanish while we celebrate another successful democratization, we didn't give a single fuck what happened to the South. As you might have heard from every other episode and every American history class from 1st to 12th grade, the Great Depression began in 1929. 
And for the majority of Americans, this shunted them directly into immense poverty. As of 1932, 78% of all people were impoverished in the U.S. Now, luckily for this part of U.S. history, Franklin Delano Hunger Than Horace Roosevelt was elected as president in 1933. Immediately after being elected, FDR introduced the New Deal program, which provided agricultural and business regulation, price and inflation stabilization, and public works projects, including electricity and water treatment, to areas like Appalachia, just in time, too, since they were about to renounce their humanity and turn into Sasquatches. Now, between 1933 and 1943, his administration also started organizations like the National Recovery Administration, the FDIC, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and the Public Works Administration to ensure that we'd bounce back from the Depression better than ever. Then in 1935, Social Security was created, and so was the Works Projects Administration, which worked on public infrastructure and art projects, not only increase the number of jobs in America, but also to increase public happiness and make the country a lot more efficient. From this moment on, there was never, ever a problem again, and America's poverty problem was solved. Oh, shit, sorry, I was looking at my fanfiction. No, in the same year, both the NRA, not that one, and the AAA were disbanded, also not that one. And then in 1937, an expansive stream criticism, some warranted and some not, of the New Deal programs, including some lawsuits, much of its structures and organizations were stripped, reduced, or changed entirely. Now, not to be beaten, FDR passed the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, which established the maximum work week to 44 hours at max with a minimum wage of 25 cents an hour as well as banning child labor and establishing the barest bones of workplace safety. Now, before some of you get your panties all twisted up and reflexively say some dumb shit about the minimum wage being too high, this puts the average wage at about 5.28 an hour. Now, this is still lower than our minimum wage now, but keep your smug fucking mouth shut. A new house, fresh out of the box, was $3,900, or accounting for inflation, $82,345.60. Right now, the average house nationwide is $348,079, and minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. This means that if you put your gross pay directly into buying a house every week, working the maximum number of hours, you'd be paying for 0.28% of a house back then, meaning you could potentially buy a house in six years. Today, if you did the same thing, you'd be buying 0.08% of a house, meaning that you could buy a house in 23 years. Now, keep in mind, these are gross income with no expenses, not a dime of expenses or taxes. Home ownership has quickly become a fucking lie, and because half of you dumbasses think inflation only exists when you complain about gas prices and liberals, nothing gets done about it. Anyways, sorry. Not sorry. In 1939, the WPA's budget is massively cut because they're spending close to $11 billion a year. Their money. And jumping forward to 1959, the first nationwide poverty stats are collected, revealing that by the late 50s, the poverty rate had dropped to 22.4%. And in 1960, as African Americans continued to fight for their civil liberties, the poverty rate in their communities dropped from 55.1 to 33.5. And President Lyndon B. Johnson declares a war on poverty, which is going to go about as well as the war on drugs. 
especially because it had such a rocky start. As in 1965, while poverty was at 17.3%, food stamps were complicated to get and you had to pay for them. In addition, they were unavailable for two-person families, meaning you had to have kids to receive it. Regardless, two million people were still on food stamps. Oh, and what happened if you couldn't afford or apply for food stamps? Well, you got the Surplus Commodities Program food, which was fucking spoiled, moldy, and maggoty. Fucking fantastic, huh? Making poor people pay to receive food when they can't afford to buy it in the first place are risking sick because you can't find a way to give half of a fuck about them. In 1971, though, an amendment passed to the Food Stamps Act, which reduced the cost down to a maximum of 30% of a family's income. Which, fucking, why? Just give them the food for free. Anyways, seeing as we're on a good track and poverty reaches the record low of 11.1%, and this being American history, something bad has to happen, right? Well, enter Richard goddamn Nixon, the bastard. In 1973, he further complicates the welfare and food stamp verification process, denying people their benefits. And why? Because Richard Nixon is an asshole. I'm convinced he was all those Native American curses placed on the conquerors of their homes, consolidated into a single person as some sort of retribution for sins as a nation. Making it even worse, in 1981, $20 billion were cut from welfare and food stamps and just in time for the economic recession in the early 80s. And then seeing they made a fucky-wucky, Congress passed the Jobs Act to help people find work and get out of poverty. Not learning their lesson from 15 years earlier, an additional $27 million was cut from food stamps in 1996. In the years 2000 to 2007, an additional 6 million people are added to the definition of poverty. Just in time for, you guessed it, the 2008 housing crisis and recession. Isn't it just fucking wild how without fail politicians and idiots get their panties in a bunch and start braying for social services to get cut right before a massive economic downturn? It's almost like that's why we have social services. So then from 2007 to 2010, an additional 9 million people are added to the definition of poverty. And in 2009, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act is passed. This attempted to fight poverty by increasing funding for programs used by low-income workers, the unemployed, and retirees. It also calculated that government assistance worked to help keep 40 million people out of poverty that year alone. And checking in, in 2012, the poverty rate climbed to 15.1%. Luckily, by 2019, it dropped to the lowest it ever was in the U.S., to 10.5%, as income levels for minorities jumped 7.9% for African Americans, 7.1% for Hispanic Americans, and 10.6% for Asian Americans. And then everything was fine. For three months. And then the pandemic happened in 2020, and now we're in a recession, near depression hellhole, that's the modern day. Oh, and guess who wanted to cut social services in 2019 and 2020? Yup, it happened a fucking again. And with the history covered, let's transition over to the current status of poverty. <laughs> Alright, so looking at the hard numbers of poverty, we're going to start with worldwide and then focus in on the U.S. for more specific stats. Overall, worldwide, while the exact numbers are hard to pin down, given that the world generally gives less of a shit about poor people than someone that subsists on hot pockets and beer, in other words, next to none, and the difficulty for people actually give a shit to get to them, there is a rough number you can track down. For adults, the overall number of people that are in poverty is 680.2 million people worldwide, which is 8% of the worldwide population. 
I know that sounds pretty low, but the United States has 4.1% of the world's global population, so more than double the number of adults as people in the U.S. live in poverty. Now, of this number, 460 million of them live in Africa, 173.7 million live in Asia, 2.1 million live in Europe, whoa, 9.6 million live in North America, 31.8 million live in South America, and 3 million in Oceania, which is like Australia and New Zealand. Also, I said whoa because I had mumble mouth, not because, like, whoa, 2.1 million people. Um, now, if you're celebrating because we have a relatively low rate of poverty, one, this isn't a fucking competition. Calm down. Second, this is a measure of near-absolute poverty being measured by World Bank in 2019 by a measure of how many people were living on $2.15 per day. Also, this doesn't take children into account. When you add the measurement for how many children are in poverty, it increases the number of impoverished people by 365 million, adding up to a total of 1,045,200,000 people living in poverty, or an eighth of the fucking planet. Oh, and if you include the measure of multidimensional poverty, rather than just income-based poverty, the number of impoverished children suddenly jumps up to a billion kids worldwide dealing with poverty. I want you to remember that, not just until the end of this episode, but forever. Right now, worldwide, a number of children equal to an eighth of the adult population of the entire motherfucking planet are living in extreme poverty. But how does the U.S. stand? Well, by our own measurement, as of 2020, 37.2 million people live below the poverty line. But here's the fucky thing. In the U.S., there are certain people that we discount from the poverty calculation, like Daddy Sam is coupon-clipping sex toys. Those being institutionalized people, people in prison, in military service, living in college dorms, and under the age of 15. Which sounds awfully fucking convenient that the U.S. doesn't keep the statistic for how many children are impoverished in the land of the free. Almost like that might actually make us look bad or make people pay attention. And, you know, we can't have that. But regardless, this percentage works out to be 11% of all Americans being in poverty. And again, these are people who are over 15, aren't soldiers or college students, and aren't locked up, which is really threading the needle of being a U.S. citizen. So how do we measure poverty in the first place? Poorly. So in the U.S., the measurement for poverty is measuring a family or individual's income against the base amount of money required to cover bare necessities, or, not and, the poverty threshold. Poverty threshold used to determine what people are impoverished is to take the cost of a minimum diet in 19-fucking-63 and multiply it by 3. And we measure the amount of supplemental income we give people based on their cost for clothing, shelter, and utilities, but not their food costs. Oh, and also their income is based on their gross pay, not what they have after taxes. Now think about that. A single U.S. dollar in 1963 was about $9.74 in today's money. In the modern day, feeding a family of four takes somewhere between $580 and $670 a month on the lowest amount of food, meaning that you're making more than somewhere between $178.65 and $206.37 per month. You don't fall below the poverty threshold. And the poverty threshold refers to the calculated cost to survive which you couldn't tell isn't fucking true considering that working poor exists. And also, maybe just maybe, we shouldn't base our current policies for pricing anything on something that the majority of people your nose fucking weren't even born to see. But who's poverty affecting the U.S.? Well, I mean, if 
you can't answer this one on your own. I don't think you've really been paying attention. Minorities, which in the case of the U.S. is anyone that wouldn't make a certain anti-Semitic European cry with pride. A straight, young, white man with no physical flaws and no children, ready to die for the right America, I mean America. Going down the list, the rate of cisgendered straight men being impoverished is 10.6%, while their female counterparts are 12.9%, which is already a drastically significant difference. And then if you had children in the mix, 11.4% of single fathers are in poverty, while 23.4% of single mothers are, which is shocking, given that when politicians get on stage to talk about who they care about, it's strangely almost always women and children that get mentioned. Weird, huh? It's almost like they're talking out of their fucking ass with no accountability. Uh, as an unrelated side, is anyone selling a guillotine? If you consider marriage, 4.7% of hetero marriages are in poverty, while 18% of unmarried couples are. And what about if they're gay? Well, 26.1% of all the LGBTQ plus community is under the poverty line, with 17.9% lesbians because they're women, so obviously the government feels the need to lay a stinky brick down their throat twice. 12.1% being gay men, since obviously it's ever so slightly easier to say out poverty when Republican senators have to constantly pay off the gay agenda to stay in the closet. 29.4% by women and 19.5% are by men because bisexuals can't catch a fucking break. And 29.4% are trans. That makes me angry for a reason that will happen in the next episode. 4% of married same-sex couples are impoverished, however, in comparison to the 4.7% hetero married couples. So, I guess for some reason the hate boner for all things gay haven't found them yet. Oh, and you better not be old or disabled, because 14.1% of old people are impoverished, and a quarter of all people in the U.S. with a disability. And finally, everyone's favorite topic, race. In the U.S., if you're white or Asian, you have the lowest poverty rate at 8.2 and 8.1%, respectively. If you're Hispanic, 17%. If you're black, 19.5%. And if you're Native American, 24.4%. And for me, none of these were especially surprising, if not disappointing. If America has been good at anything besides war and fuckery, it's been giving Hispanic, black, and Native American people the middle finger since white people first put a pinky toe onto American soil. Learning about American history sometimes feels like an episodic miniseries where every week a brand new team of dingleberries try to find a new way to make a minority's life worse. But anyways, let's also briefly touch on where poverty is the most prevalent in the U.S. Now, as much as some of the talking heads on Fox News like you to believe, it actually isn't liberal cities. Liberal cities just have that reputation because there's usually like a single DHS office and a soup kitchen, and Taco Carlson pisses his pants and scrunches his face like a baby about the ugly cry. The three states with the highest poverty rates are Mississippi at 19.6%, Louisiana at 19%, and New Mexico at 18.2%. While places with the lowest poverty rates are New Hampshire at 7.3%, Utah at 8.9%, and Minnesota at 9%. Now, historically, Mississippi and Louisiana are conservative states, while New Hampshire and Minnesota are generally more considered liberal states. And sure, granted that Utah is usually conservative and New Mexico is liberal, the biggest reason why I share this is to dispel the liberal cities myth. Because yeah, New Mexico has high poverty rates. See, motherfucking desert and their biggest city is Albuquerque. And Utah is... Utah. Anyways, speaking of myths, I also wanted to discuss the myths surrounding poverty. And the reason is because before I really talk about people's opinions, 
I think it's important to break down the bullshit, terrible takes people have about it. First is the myth that poor people are lazy and are just mooching off the system. This comes from a very easy-to-trace source. Essentially, in the U.S., we've combined prosperity gospel with a Protestant work ethic, which means that work equals money, which equals success, which equals your moral value. You're nodding along and saying, hell yeah, brother. I have news for you. That isn't how reality works. Life is unfair, and sometimes when you play icky cookie, you eat the cookie. Except you didn't have the choice to play in the first place. Your parents chose to make you play, which is a gross way to think about that. Not all hard work is rewarded, and if you accept this myth as reality, you not only are saying that poor people deserve it for not working hard enough, but are entirely opening the door for scumbags like me to tell you you deserve it when something shitty happens to you. Also, unlike what this myth claims, your value as a human isn't tied to monetary value you bring to the table. Now, to dispel this myth, we don't have to look further than some stats. So, 6.3 million Americans are working poor, and of the 3.4 million married couples receiving SNAP benefits, 84% of those households had at least one member working, and 49% had at least two. Add on to that, that impoverished working adults work on average 48 hours a week. So why are they poor? Because the system is fucking broken and rigged and 44% of jobs are low income and an increasing amount are part-time as businesses become increasingly selfish as the benefits to full-time employees continue to expand and they aren't being fucking punished for it and the entire welfare system needs funding and a revamp and guess who doesn't want that to happen? The people who have to approve their fucking budget. Alright, so the second myth is that all these poor people are just addicts and waste their money buying drugs. And here's the thing about this one, is that they aren't you, scumbag in a lifted truck with sunglasses on his Facebook profile picture, whose name is probably John. Poor people aren't going to spend mommy's allowance on drugs. If you think for a minute longer than it takes to snort down a single breath, you'd see why this is fucking dumb. Poor people use drugs less than people who are more wealthy, because you guessed it, they're fucking broke. And why do you see poor people doing drugs more often? Because you're either watching motherfucking television, or it's harder to hide drug use because they don't have a spare bedroom to go light a joint up in. Third is the myth that poor people are criminals. Which isn't true, just based on the fact that poor people don't commit crimes at a higher rate than people who are wealthier, and are in fact more likely to be a victim in a crime than a perpetrator. But then why do they get arrested more often? I hear you asking while clutching your pearls harder than you love your own kids. Because it's harder to pay for fines, and they also don't have the money to pay for lawyers. Say, for example, that you're broke as fuck and get a parking ticket. Well, you can't pay for that because all you have in your pocket is two quarters in used condoms, so when it comes time to pay it off, the government ups the charge, and next thing you know, you're standing in court with a public defender that's pulling their fourth all-nighter in a row that's so tired they don't even know where they are. Now, fourth is the belief of rampant fraud and snap in similar welfare systems with as high as 59% of adults believing fraud of these systems is common. You know what the actual number is? 0.9%, which is 14 out of 10,000 households that file SNAP benefits. And yet, SNAP keeps getting fucking audited, and I know shit have heard people in the grocery store ask someone receiving SNAP if they stole it. Unluckily for society, I was working there at the time and did not have the honor to stone-cold stunner their fucking spine in half in response. But you know what's more common? Retailers like grocery stores stealing about a billion dollars of SNAP benefits per year. And how they do that? With either card skimmers that remove a large amount of the balance than a normal card reader would, 
or by doing some under-the-table shady shit where they buy the SNAP benefits for less than they're worth and then pocket the difference. And usually, this isn't done consensually. They make up some bullshit about, oh, your card's busted, here's the balance that was on it, and then sell it off later. Like fucking scumbags. So if you're going to be mad, be angry at the piece of shit businesses stealing money instead of the people who have almost everything but income in common with. You fucker. The fifth is the myth of entitlement, which is really fucking ironic, because the absolute dumbasses that had their brains replaced with a dog's nutsack that actually believe this think that people in poverty are entitled and should just suck it up and get themselves out of poverty. And while I want to be reasonable about this, somewhere deep in my heart, I feel like the only way to deal with people like this is to neuter their testicle brain if you get my drift. But if I have to be fucking reasonable, no, people in poverty aren't entitled. They pay into the system just like you are, and if you think that the U.S. does a good job of taking care of its poor, you're more fucking delusional than I am, and I literally have depression, anxiety, and schizophrenic features. Being more delusional than me is an Olympic event. Sixth is the not-my-tax-dollars argument that your precious fucking tax dollars shouldn't get taken out of your paycheck to go towards more important things, like slipping to a stripper's ass crack or giving to your children to make them leave you alone while you write a Facebook post about how attentive of a parent you fucking are. Now, if you have more come in your frontal lobe than I do in my sheets, you probably don't know that only about 36 bucks a year is sent to assistance programs, which, ironic, is 69 cents a month. This is exactly what I'm doing as I speak with your daughter that you haven't seen since she graduated with a master's degree in psychology last year. She doesn't miss you, by the way. Now, also, for every dollar invested in SNAP, there's a $1.70 return, meaning that $61.20 is returned to society per payer into the system. And it also stimulates the economy of rural impoverished areas because now people can afford to fucking eat. Seventh is the myth that people who are poor are just bad at budgeting and money management and that, like you, they spend ten grand a year on OnlyFans and scratcher tickets, which is just categorically wrong. See, while you're out here maxing out your credit card skin to debt, 11.3% of all people on these programs get into debt and need help because of medical debt alone. And also, 30% of parents that receive money from the advanced child tax credit spend them on school supplies, another 25% spend it on child care, 30% put into savings or for debt payments, and most of that 15% that remains use the pay to keep the roof over their fucking heads and food in the fridge. And sure, maybe for you, these sound like frivolous things, because the last time you gave a shit about your kids is when they came flying down your fucking cervix so you could post about for clout. For people who actually have empathy and care about other humans, making sure kids have security sure is a hell good of a use for it. And even ignoring the economy for a second, edge yourself, Shapiro, people on benefits are happier and feel less stressed because they feel like they can actually manage unexpected expenses and are able to find work easier. Eighth is the idea that they can pop out kids and stay on the government's teeth. And honestly, just fuck you. Like, what more can I say? If you believe this, you apparently think that taking care of kids is both easy and cheap, and that like you, everyone lacks the capacity for basic human empathy and want their children to suffer. Women on welfare have extremely low birth rates, being at 45.8%, when the national average for women between 18 and 44 is 71.1%. Also, no one wants to be on these programs. You know why? Because, and sorry mom, these programs fucking suck. The government moves slower than a tortoise trying to cross an ankle-deep pit of tar, 
and a good half of the time they fuck it up. That, or you get sent 500 letters about shit you didn't have to know, and then two letters that if you don't read within five minutes of receiving, will release a cloud of anthrax and revoke your citizenship. And then add on to that that these systems aren't able to pay out everything you need in order to survive, and you're sometimes waiting a full month while the government learns how to read two consecutive words together, that's to hand you a sticky piece of paper with $200, lol, written in sloppy crayon. Sorry, that's hyperbolic. I'm at the stage of anger where I just windmill my arms and I don't care who gets hit anymore. Ninth is the good old-fashioned, if they were poor, they wouldn't have X. <sighs> Sorry, I'm holding in naughty words that I can't say. Let me use my actual words. It's none of your fucking business what people buy with their money. Maybe, if you weren't such a judgmental bitch, you'd see your kids on more days than weekends and holidays. If your perception of a poor person is abject poverty, like what they show on TV, you're thinking too narrowly. Even though someone is poor doesn't mean they don't deserve to have nice things. Like how the both of us are insufferable asshats, and we both have people who will publicly admit to not smothering us with a pillow when they had the chance. Stop being a fucking crybaby because you're throwing a tantrum that they have an iPhone and Starbucks and you don't. You know why they have those things? No? Good. It's not your fucking business. And this is a call out to anyone who works at a cashier anywhere and judges people for what they buy with SNAP benefits. I hope your next three customers come in right before lunch and are 95-year-old women that buy exclusively sodas and watermelon and forgot their coupons so they don't want any of it anyways. Fuck you. The final myth I'm going to cover before I blow a gasket is that poverty is a product of bad choices. Which... In a few situations, sure, but poverty itself, especially under capitalism, where you're supposed to get paid for the labor value you provide, is a societal failing, not a personal one. And sure, and sure, there's the rare dummy that goes flat broke off a of crypto or some shit, but shitheads like that get picked up pretty quickly by a family that would be ashamed if they even knew a person making less than two figures a month. People in poverty work physically, mentally, and emotionally more than me, you, your entire family, and still get jack shit for it, which is supremely unfair. Anyways, I'm going to take us over to politics. So, because it'll be fairly quick, and this section isn't going to be that long anyways, I'm going to start with the conservative and uh, liberal outlooks on the topic first. And I'm not going to focus on the conservative outlooks that say that poverty shouldn't exist, or that poverty doesn't exist in America, or is deserved. Because obviously those people can get sent down the river in a bag full of dicks. Preferably their own if that's possible. Uh, but these outlooks honestly seem to come down to trust. So on the conservative end, their trust in general is with the private sector businesses rather than the government. So to them, the best people to handle this is the private sector. Since they're more likely geared more for being able to care for people and have as part of their mission statement. Now, this is in regards to nonprofit organizations, charities, and centers of faith. On the business end, their belief generally comes down to the idea that the federal government shouldn't be spending more money than it does, and should actually be doing less than it's doing now, since the money being spent isn't being returned. Which, uh, let me check back up to the script here, and yep, that's wrong. But, I mean, besides that, I kind of get it. Their perspective is that the government is shady, untrustworthy, and and even if you could trust them, the government tends to be really bureaucratic and slow, so it should just stay out of the way. And on the liberal end, the trust is more put into the government. Now, this is for a few reasons. Primarily, this is because the government has an obligation, 
even if it's a nominal obligation, to try to help people. Private sector stuff doesn't have that obligation. Also, the government has the capacity logistically to do this, while a lot of private citizens and organizations don't. The government is able to keep a better track on the numbers and actually make sure that people are being helped, and the government also isn't allowed to discriminate. At least, not out loud. They gotta do that quietly with dog whistles. And the other reason why the government should help is the you broke it, you fix it mentality. Because face it, in the modern world, in a nation with as much money as its disposal as the United fucking States of America, there's no reason why its citizens should suffer with such high poverty rates. Because we wouldn't be in the situation if you just handled your shit correctly the first time, so don't let big business or Jesus bail you out. You made people poor, so you should be the ones to make them not poor. Now before we get into actual solutions, there was also a poll conducted in 2014 I wanted to bring up as well to discuss opinions. Now this poll was a really short one, asking only two questions to a panel of people in income brackets. These questions were, is the government not doing enough to help the poor, or can the government not afford it? And, do poor people have the good life or pretty shitty one? Now in answering the first question, 43% of respondents answered the government is really fucking this shit up and really needs to get it together and actually help while 51% said the government can't afford it. Before you start trashing your room in either rage, that people that are that much of assholes, or excitement, the libs are finally getting their asses smushed, this is where the economic breakdown comes in. 57% of people in poverty said the government really should be doing more, while every other bracket, at least 50% of people between 20k a year and over 150k a year, said the government should stop giving people money. Now, as I said on this podcast before, I think people experiencing the shitty thing or know about the shit that's fucked should be the ones who get to talk. And this is the prime example. Now, when asked if poor people had hard lives, 47% of respondents said yes, while 44% said no. Wait, what? Okay, what unnerves me even more is that of the people in poverty, the proportion is 65% saying, yeah, life fucking sucks, and 28% who apparently want life on hard mode saying they've seen worse. And I don't know why that is. What I found very interesting is that 3% more people said that poor people have hard lives. There are 6% fewer people saying they have it easy when compared to the first answer. Which means that there are 3-6% to of the population that understands that poor people don't have life easy, but are still fully okay with giving them less money and resources, obsessively, to escape poverty. These fucking people use our roads. You see them at work. There's probably a few of them you've seen at the grocery store doing normal person shit like holding something wondering if it's going to give them diarrhea. However, this is also the only time that the poor people have a good crowd dips below 50%. Interestingly, for both questions, the respondents with the highest rate of answering like a dickhead was the 75k to 150k income bracket, saying that we should cut funding 61% of the time that poor people have it easy 55% of the time compared to the people making over 150k sitting at 57% for defund and 51% for the good life respectively. But with that covered, let's talk how to fix it. Because while yes, we now know that generally speaking, the only way to really address poverty is to get people out of poverty, what are ways specifically to address the problem? And here's the thing, unlike other episodes, this episode isn't going to be focused on the government end, because all of that would come down to is, hey, Maybe do something that isn't being a shitlord for once. So instead, we're covering seven ways that you, today, can more effectively fight the war on poverty than the U.S. can. First, 
fight your own biases. Is the only thing stopping you from giving that homeless guy quarters because you assume he's either dangerous or going to buy drugs with them? Challenge that shit. Fight the thought and think about why you think that. Did your dad that thinks gay people are fake say that when you were six? Did you watch TV shows where the homeless people were crazy? Did you just assume that everyone who was homeless had the same story you heard about a friend's friend's aunt that got addicted to crack in 1988? By fighting your biases, you're more likely to help and more likely to do something. Second, create awareness and get educated. And no, this podcast doesn't count. It's an internet radio show hosted by a 23-year-old with an English literature degree leaning on research from the internet and borrowed from someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Love you, Mom. What you should do is take the things you've learned here and delve deeper. Understand poverty and where it is in your own community. Take the things you've learned and tell people. When you see people with the same biases that you have that aren't trying to fight it, call them out. Or when someone says something shitty and untrue about poor people, call them out. Or do WWE moves on them? I can't stop you, and also I didn't tell you to do that. Third, donate to causes that address poverty or the symptoms of it. And I don't mean round up at the grocery store. And donating your time, money, and effort to organizations that work to end poverty. Even better if it's locally, since you can see the effects around you. Volunteer at soup kitchens and work with organizations that do shit that needs your grunt work. Stuff like building homes, raising money, and delivering food or kits of essentials to people in need. The fourth is to take proactive action. Reach out to places like homeless shelters or local charities and ask what people need. Then make kits of those things and give them to these places. Is your local food bank in desperate need of better protein and you just so happen to have a 32-pack of spam you don't want? Or even better, does your local food bank need vegetables and you don't have enough space for everything your garden grew? Donate that shit. Also, try doing a fundraiser. Don't let these charitable bastards have all the credit. Raise money to donate and be a fucking hero. If for no other reason to upstage Jana and her fucking honor roll third grader. Look, if you can't find it in your heart to be a good person, be an asshole for a good cause. Fifth, attend rallies, conventions, city halls, and demonstrations. Politicians, ever so slightly more than their donors backing out, really fear people voting them out of office. So take every opportunity you can to force their hand on this. Because poverty, more than most other problems in America, is an endless black hole that only gets worse because no one is giving a single fuck about it. If you show up to every rally and demonstration to display support for people in poverty, then you're an extra body the politicians have to see and will know will support them if they so much as say that they'll fix it. And of course, if they refuse to actually help or listen to public opinion, that's when you show up to rallies and city hall meetings to talk about this being an issue. Show up so much and talk about it so incessantly that their initial reaction to seeing your face is blind panic as they realize this entire meeting is going to go wildly out of their favor. Be an asshole for a good cause. Which is why I've been throwing bricks with you know what I want written on it through the windows of Oregon politicians. And for some reason they keep sending the FBI after me. That just means I'm close. Now, six and seven are both if you're a business owner. So if you aren't, instead make friends with one and whisper these to them from under their bed while they're trying to sleep at night. First, create more jobs. Your company has a place that can be filled by someone who may or may not have higher education or education at all. Open that position up. If you have a small programming company with four employees and lean on a cleaning company to help clean stuff at night, something as small as transferring to having five employees can be a lifesaver to someone in poverty. Obviously, 
pay a living wage in fair conditions. And the last thing is to be fair to your employees. Provide them with sick leave, benefits, PTO, basically whatever you can manage. Because for some people, taking a day off without pay can mean the difference between being homeless or not. So if you allow people to not have to come in while they're sick and infect other people, or let them take their kid's birthday off and not be a complete fucking miserly asshole, not only will that employee be more loyal, but also you're doing something that can reduce poverty in your community by doing nothing. But with that, I'm going to go to the soap. So, at the end of this, I have to say that this whole episode has been monumentally challenging for me. Because poverty is very often on my mind. Growing up, I was surrounded by it. My parents did everything they fucking could to make sure that I didn't suffer from it. Some of my closest friends have suffered from poverty, and my parents have both worked for social services in the past. And it puts all of this close to my heart. And poverty makes me enraged and sad. Because I have a massive sense of fairness. And seeing people whose only crimes were being unlucky, sick, injured, traumatized, or being in the wrong place at just barely the wrong time, being constantly pushed in the mud and forced to just accept their fate makes me want to cry for them. It makes me want to shout and scream and tear the system up by its roots. It makes it all even more frustrating and depressing is we know the solutions. We covered it early in the episode how governments and societies are supposed to help. People who are poor won't be poor for long when given the proper help and support. So it makes me so vitriolically mad seeing people constantly talk shit about poor people. Because unlike what you expect, sure, I picture my friends and family busting their asses and taking this abuse on the chin. But I'm actually more angry with the people I don't know. How fucking dare someone assume they know someone else's struggles? How fucking dare they use them to be a worthless piece of shit? We don't know why someone's impoverished, and hey, that's not our fucking business. Why? Because no matter how much you slice it, poverty fucking sucks. The hopelessness, the fear, the stress and pain, and the drain it has on us. And you know how to win the war against poverty? By not fighting against the impoverished. And more than anything, I hate that so many people with poverty and the poor are perfectly fine with it happening as long as they don't see it. So many people lack basic empathy for someone that is more of a human being than they are. And yes, I'm saying someone without empathy for the poor isn't a person. You heard me right. But how do I think we fight poverty? Empathy and trust. When there are impoverished people in your community, don't treat them like an outsider. I hope, if nothing else, this episode is a jumping off point to learn more and to understand what it's like for people having to make daily hard choices to survive. And then you need to trust people in poverty that once they have the tools to succeed, they'll do it. People want to succeed and have a fulfilling life and not struggle. So trust people to do that. And sure, it's easy to give up because it feels hopeless. But all the people who feel that way need even just a moment that tells them there's a point. A single person reaching their hand down that pit, no matter how deep, is usually enough to ask for help. So this is my call to action. Before I post the next episode, do something to help the impoverished. All I ask is a single thing. Donate your time or money. Give someone change for the bus. Even so much as stand up against assholes that think poverty is a moral failing. That's all good to me. Alright, let's get you home. Alright, and there you are. Episode 4 is in the bag, which 
while it was difficult for me, I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad you listened so, this far. Thank you so much. You know, as always, if you have opinions, advice on how to make the show better, personal stories, your own personal designs for guillotines to redistribute the money of the greedy, and really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to send me an email at waytatpods at gmail.com. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat Nerd, where I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc., where I hope you'll like the topics just as much. You'll get to see me a bit looser over there. And also, um, I do have a Twitter now for uh, Waytat Pods. Um, it is at Waytat underscore pods on Twitter. So go ahead and check that out, too. Uh, anyways, have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun. And hey, donate your time. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This? I've been your host, William. Good night.